This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Season 4, Episode 17, Hate Studies. Why do we need to learn about hate? Gonzaga University is a Jesuit institution located in Spokane, Washington. Spokane is a city of 222,000 people and a three-state metro area of 573,000 people, spreading across three Pacific Northwest states of Washington, Idaho, and Montana. The private liberal arts university of 7,421 students was established in 1887 by an Italian Jesuit called Father Joseph Cataldo, and it was established with a mandate to educate the sons of farmers, ranchers, miners, and professionals in the Pacific Northwest. The Jesuit philosophy of education, of course, is to care for the whole person, both body and soul. The university is today co-ed, both men and women, and it's expanded its original educational mandate to include a law school, an engineering school, a business school, a nursing school, as well as a leadership school. Spokane's Eastern Washington location has it located about 30 miles from the Idaho border and 37 miles from Hayden Lake, Idaho, which was the site of the Aryan Nations compound, which has now been disbanded, and more about that in our podcast. In today's podcast, I want to focus on the Institute of Hate Studies at Gonzaga University, what its charter is, and why the subject of hate studies is so important. But first, let me begin with some defined terms to ensure that we are all on the same page. The Merriam-Webster dictionary definition of hate is to hate, detest, abhor, abominate, loathe, and it means to feel a very strong aversion or intense dislike for someone. So that's the definition of hate. Hate implies an emotional aversion, often coupled with enmity or malice. Hate speech, as defined by the Cambridge Dictionary, is public speech that expresses hate or encourages violence toward a person or a group based on something such as race, religion, sex, or sexual orientation. A hate group, of course, is a social group that practices hate and hostility or violence against a race or a group or a sexual orientation group. And a hate crime is a crime which involves violence motivated by prejudice. So they are our defined terms around the concept of hate. Freedom of speech is the right to express any opinions without censorship or constraints. 
Finally, politically correct means to be sensitive to others' points of view. And that, of course, is often seen as a constraint on freedom of speech. The Gonzaga Institute for Hate Studies was created in 1997 to advance the academic field of hate studies and links the Gonzaga community with experts and key stakeholders globally through activities of inquiry, scholarship, and action service. Dr. Christine Hoover is Dr. Christine Hoover heads up the institution. The Journal of Hate Studies is an international scholarly journal which promotes the sharing of interdisciplinary ideas and research related to the study of what hate is, where it comes from, and how to combat it. So as we began the podcast with a question as to why we need to learn about hate, there is your answer. In the case of Gonzaga, the catalyst for the creation of the Institute occurred in the late 1990s. It was founded in December 1997, and the Institute held its first formal meeting in the fall of 1998. A series of attacks on Black law students at the Gonzaga Law School was the immediate catalyst for creating the Institute. Further, the Pacific Northwest has been a region where hate groups have flourished. The Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center identified 52 such groups in 2019 that are active, and the SPLC tracks them in the states of Washington, Idaho, and Oregon. In an earlier podcast, which is episode 13, dated September 7th, we explored why the Pacific Northwest has become this magnet for hate groups. But where can hate lead? The Anti-Defamation League, which is the leading Jewish-based organization to combat hate, has created a diagram which illustrates the point, and it's called the Pyramid of Hate. It's a useful visual tool which helps to understand how small acts of prejudice can escalate to extreme violence and even worse. There are five steps in the pyramid which we'll consider. The first and the foundation of the pyramid is bias. And bias is a preconceived negative group of a group of people. It's a negative view of a group of people. It manifests itself in scapegoating a group as the cause of society's problems, accepting preconceived views, and not challenging hateful statements or jokes. The second level of the pyramid, above bias, 
is individual acts of prejudice. In addition to making hateful statements, people may also avoid individuals of a specific group, ridicule them individually or as a group, or call them hateful names. The next level up, the third level of this pyramid, is discrimination. And discrimination, whether it's by law or by practice. I'm thinking about institutional racism, such as the apartheid system in the old South Africa, or the old Jim Crow laws in the southern states of the United States, which are long gone, but existed until the 1960s. Certainly, the anti-LGBTQ laws, which are still in the process of being removed from the books. Also, examples of anti-religious prejudice, such as in Northern Ireland, where Catholics that effectively could not vote, didn't have civil rights, uh, or Saudi Arabia, which to this day uh, discriminates against um, anyone other than Muslims. You cannot have a non-Muslim religious service in Saudi Arabia, nor are there any places of worship, Christian or Jewish or non-Muslim, in Saudi Arabia. And for the millions of foreign workers who come to Saudi Arabia from the Philippines and from other non-Muslim countries, those foreign workers are not able to practice their religion freely in Saudi Arabia. So there are some examples of discrimination which is sanctioned by law and practice and how that kind of discrimination is actually the third layer of this pyramid of hate. The fourth level of the pyramid of hate is bias-motivated violence. Now we're actually moving from thought and concept and even laws into the field of violence. And this is called bias-motivated violence. And this is violence against people or property, such as desecrating holy places, cemeteries, um, pogroms, anti-Christian persecution in the Middle East, for instance, is one example of this. Anti-Uyghur violence in China is something which is going on today with those concentration camps for the Uyghurs in China. During the 1990s, we had the Bosnian ethnic cleansing by the Serbs in the old Yugoslavia. And again, other such acts of violence directed against people because of who they are, what they believe, or where they live. And all of these actions in turn, these violent actions, can then lead to the pinnacle of the pyramid, which is genocide. And genocide is defined as the act or the intent to deliberately and systematically annihilate an entire people. Genocide has existed since time immemorial. And genocide was something which was not, which was swept under the rug. And the history of genocides 
has been not very well documented. In fact, the very term genocide was not even coined until the 20th century. Unfortunately, the timing of that coining of the term, the 20th century, proved to be very auspicious. Because throughout the 20th century, genocides have been all too common. We're familiar, of course, with the Armenian Genocide in 1915, followed by the Holocaust of the Jewish people, moving on to the Cambodian Genocide in the 1970s, and the Rwandan Genocide in the 1990s. Of course, those four genocides, as awful as they were, were only the tip of the iceberg. Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts has documented 21 genocides in the 20th century, with the greatest genocide having been waged in China in the 1950s and 1960s, when up to 75 million people were killed in China in a genocide. The second largest genocide occurred in the old USSR during the purges of the 1930s and into the 1940s, followed by the German genocides. And it wasn't simply the genocide of the Jews, but also genocides throughout Eastern Europe of the Roma people and other minority groups. That numbered 12 million. Very large genocide in the Congo, in Japan, and in Turkey. So those six genocides of the 20th century, China, the US, the USSR, Germany, the Congo, Japan, and Turkey, were responsible for the sixth greatest genocides by numbers of people killed. You can go to the mountholyoke.edu website for a complete listing and numbers of these genocides. Nor are genocides all buried in the distant past. Of the 21 genocides of the 20th century, 14 of them occurred in our lifetimes between the 1950s and the 1990s. Thus, in considering the pyramid of hate, which culminates in genocide, the answer to the question as to why we need to study hate is glaringly obvious. And for those of us who've lived from the 1950s until today, 14 of those 21 genocides of this of the 20th century took place during our lifetimes. To step back for a moment, but keeping that pyramid of hate in our minds and our mind's eye, let's come back to the first and the lower level of that pyramid, bias, and the individual acts of prejudice which go along with bias. During the last four months of civil unrest here in the United States and the public discussion of police reform, the concept of implicit bias has been popularized. Implicit bias refers to attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, our actions and decisions in an unconscious manner and Implicit bias can often be subtle. We always need to be aware of it 
And we especially need to be aware of implicit bias, particularly in the field of law enforcement. Hate speech, as defined, does not mean having an opinion different from someone else or being in disagreement. Too often, the term hate speech is bandied around by Hollywood celebrities and they don't know what they're talking about. But during this political season, and especially during the presidential campaign, it's easy to demonize or to make your opponent the quote-unquote other or somehow less or lesser. And of course, the nature of politics is such that you always have an opponent. You're fighting with the opponent. You're trying to make the opponent or the opponent's ideas less and less acceptable to your supporters. So we have to be very careful, particularly in this era of highly polarized attitudes in our country. We have to be very careful about hate speech creeping in and watch out for it, particularly during the presidential campaign on both sides. Hate is not a partisan issue. Hate is, a, is part of human nature. And we just need to be very sensitive towards it and call it out when we see it and know it when we see it. We see and hear these attitudes on the news every night, especially with the exaggerated political speech in the protest movements. I think you all know what I'm talking about. We've all seen it. And we see it every night. We saw it just a couple of nights ago with the ambush of the Los Angeles sheriffs. Also, academics especially have a responsibility to ensure that their instruction and their ideas do not flow into the field of hate speech. In large measure, many academics on our university campuses have contributed to a culture of intolerance on university campuses. It's one thing to have another opinion. It's something else to prevent your opponent from even expressing their opinion. Unfortunately, many university campuses have seen a rise in anti-Semitic speech and anti-Semitic conduct. That has to stop. And that's where the academics should be taking a lead which unfortunately, I'm not seeing that. Religious leaders also need to be very mindful of hurting, hurtful, and demonizing statements and descriptions of people, particularly LGBTQ people. So religious leaders just need to be very careful in their speech about that community so as to not incite their religious followers into hatred of the LGBTQ community. Social media and legacy media play a key role in the free speech arena. The unregulated world of social media has fallen victim to being manipulated by outside and malevolent forces. The freedom of speech, of course, is guaranteed by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. 
But it is not a freedom which is absolute or unfettered. For instance, you cannot scream in a crowded theater, fire, for fear of creating panic, and then a stampede, which leads to injury and possibly death, as the audience tries to flee. So that's an example of the freedom of speech, and it must be used responsibly. You don't have a right to shout fire in a crowded theater because of the consequences that could come as a result of that exercise of quote-unquote free speech. And the sterile and intolerant politically correct atmosphere, again, that we see on so many American university campuses is an abridgment of free speech at the other end of the political spectrum. A careful balance of this freedom of speech is critical in this country, particularly with more than 300 million firearms in the hands of the public. So freedom of speech in America poses a dilemma, and we never want to use our freedom of speech or abuse our freedom of speech and see it become hate speech. So the power of speech to confirm bias or to create bias is very powerful. And as we've seen in the pyramid of hate, bias is the base of that pyramid. And the importance of not letting bias escalate out of control is paramount. The Gonzaga Institute of Hate Studies does important work with bringing these issues to the forefront of government policymakers, law enforcement leadership, religious thinkers of all denominations, the political community, and increasingly, the social media world. To give you an example, the Aryan Nation, which was a white supremacist and neo-Nazi organization, located their compound in nearby Hayden Lake, Idaho, close to Spokane and not that far from the Gonzaga University campus. However, the compound was dismantled and has been turned into a peace park. The Aryan nation, of course, is now splintered. It has largely left Idaho, although some of its adherents are still in Idaho. And smaller factions of the Aryan nation have spread to Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Tennessee. Unfortunately, people who embrace their philosophy or philosophies like theirs, the neo-Nazi philosophy or white supremacist philosophy, those people are often marginalized to begin with, and they find support for their views and for their marginalization in belonging to a group, and they find unity among themselves, as opposed to the other the quote-unquote, the other. They often blame the other for all of their own problems rather than looking 
inside themselves. And they're encouraged to blame the other by the leadership of entities like that. The International Conference for the Institute of Hate Studies at Gonzaga University will take place in November 2021, which is one year from now. And during that conference, they'll be hosting an exhibit from the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. The, the exhibit depicts how seemingly ordinary citizens like you and I can become swept up in these awful activities of biased conduct, which is essentially a slippery slope, which can lead to discrimination, then to violence, and even much worse, against the other. My sources for today's podcast include the Anti-Defamation League, Gonzaga University's Institute of Hate Studies, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Journal of Hate Studies, Mount Holyoke College, and study.com. This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley, signing off from America's favorite city, San Francisco.